Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. And yes, this voice does sound different. Normally you hear Doug, but today you're going to hear from me, Matthew Bellis. So you might have heard my show, Good News, Bad News, on a a couple of times throughout the Libertarian Christian Institute network. You might have seen my YouTube channels try to give you up-to-date newsworthy info bites here, there, and everywhere, and do it in an entertaining way. But today, I've actually turned a little bit of the tables on Doug, and I wanted to bring somebody on that I've admired for quite some time. I've listened to a lot of his things. I follow his things on social media, on YouTube, his podcasts as well. He's a guy that has flown a little bit under the libertarian radar, but he's somebody who makes it very well known, and I thought I would bring him on to discuss his role in social media, what he does as a Christian out there in the world of YouTube, and what it means for him to be a libertarian in the world today. We have with us here, he is the host of the 10-Minute Bible Hour and uh, Ironwood Rhino, which are wonderful podcasts. He's also the co-host of the ever-popular No Dumb Questions, where he interacts with his co-host and friend Destin Sandlin of the YouTube channel Smarter Every Day. He's an ordained minister, but currently not pastoring a church, a YouTube personality, also a committed husband and father who is endlessly, frankly, entertaining, informative. He's a really cool guy, kind of like the cool version of Salty. And if you get that reference, you and I can be friends. But uh, (laughs) it's good to have him as a conversationalist here. And most importantly for us, he's a Christian and a libertarian. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Matt Whitman. Thanks for joining us here, Matt. I really appreciate you. Yeah, you bet. Nice to be here. That's as a ludicrously generous introduction. I'm not sure I totally know what to do with all of that, but thanks for your thoroughness and generosity. I have been following you for, gosh, ever since the beginning of No Dumb Questions, which you guys have been doing that for how many years now? Hmm. I haven't done math on that. Seven? <laughs> seven years? I've probably been working on that seven years, something like that. Yeah, a long time. That's old for a podcast. Well, I mean, I knew about it because I'd followed Destin on Smarter Every Day, and he talked about the fact that he was doing this podcast. I picked it up and heard your name and realized, frankly, I had more in common with you (laughs) than probably Destin, even though we're probably of the same generation around that time period, early 80s and growing up and everything. But frankly, you as a libertarian, you made it known very quickly that that was the worldview that you were coming from. Yeah, absolutely. And part of the fun of the friction of that show is that Destin does come at it a little bit differently. I don't think politics is his favorite thing in the world. And <laughs> he does seem to shy away. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's not the game he's playing. And really, me neither. I'm not interested in using my platform primarily to talk shop about politics or to promote a candidate or a party or anything like that. Sure. But philosophically, it's a pretty straightforward proposition. I'm a classical liberal. I'm enthusiastic about the Western project. I study the history of ideas. I see connections with modern 
libertarian philosophy that go all the way back to Persia and beyond. Really? And I view this as a 2,700, 2,800 year old intellectual project about the relationship between the individual and the state, the individual and the collective. So it's such a, an expensive Petri dish, such an expensive research lab to have that kind of data set. Yeah, that kind of sample size and all different cultures and different eras and to see it all point to there really being one achievable sweet spot in our relationship with our neighbors who see the world differently and in the relationship with whatever degree of government you have. And so I'm pretty enthusiastic about it. And it's been interesting in my lifetime to see maybe that enthusiasm wane a little bit on the part of larger society as people are flirting more with the attractiveness, the seduction of authoritarianism of late. <laughs> wow. You really are very good at putting the cherry on top of that because I was just saying to myself, what is the main driving purpose of, in your mind, to your libertarian mindset? And it does seem to come from your knowledge of history and your understanding of basically how we got here. Frankly, I have to say, I learned from you the relation between the United States and ancient Rome and how even ancient Rome got to be where it is because of Greece and Persia. And even before that, you know, the constant story of humanity, even throughout the Bible, we get to this point in, like you said, the Western project today in our relationship with the state. It seems that you come from a massive historical background to this position today where a lot of libertarians would say, oh, yeah, I listened to Ron Paul once and I like what he said. Well, that's a pretty good way to get there, too. <laughs> well, sure. Yeah. Dr. Paul's got a Ted screw on straight. Yeah. But your grasp of history and understanding that you've probably seen that interaction between the individual and the state and where those two basically collide and all the problems that come from it. Yeah. And really... Everybody who contributed, everybody's held the baton of the West or part of the West at any point in the relay race of history. Everybody's given us a lesson or two. Everybody's tried something and given us a data point to say, all right, here's what happens if you do this with the relationship between the individual and the collective. And so we get a really odd outlier in maybe one of the first baton carriers of the Western tradition which would be the theocracy amongst the Hebrews after they left Egypt. Well, that's a real weird gig. I mean, God is literally king. He's literally president. Right, right. And he's unelected and he's very good at his job, but he's got this unique covenant relationship with his people. And so there's a certain amount that you can draw that's exemplary from that moment in history and apply to modern times. But there are limitations because, well, God hasn't made any covenant or confirmed it with fire from heaven or anything like that with any other nation before or since. He made one deal like that with one people. Why did he make it? Well, he spelled that out in his opening promise to those people, to Abraham. He made the deal so that he would be known to them and to the nations, that his attributes would be known, and so that they eventually would be a blessing to all the nations. So that one unique example of the relationship between God and the state and individuals is supposed to teach things, but it is not necessarily duplicatable because he doesn't make any promises like that with everybody else. Right. So we get one set of lessons from that crowd. 
But then we also get a whole bunch of lessons from their neighbors, particularly their superpower neighbors like Assyria, who tries absolutely ruthless oppression and crushing of ideas they don't tolerate, breeding out ideas they don't tolerate. They're monsters. Then Babylon comes along. They're a little bit more economically modernized. They look a little more familiar to us today. Mm -hmm. But still, their civil libertarian record is atrocious. They don't have a bill of rights. And if the king wakes up one day and is like, let's have a giant statue of me made out of precious metals. And then let's just make everyone do some sort of public gesture of fealty to this thing. If they don't do it, we'll just engage in cruel and unusual punishment. We'll just kill them. Well, along comes Persia after a 60-year run with Babylon, and they learn some things from everything that had gone wrong with all prior empires. And while they are certainly not modern civil libertarians, they're, I mean, they're not Rousseau or Descartes or Jefferson. What they right. are are pragmatic. And Cyrus, the first great king, Darius, the second great king, Xerxes, the third great king, and Artaxerxes, the fourth great king of Persia, they all realize that it is expedient for them to engage in tolerance, to let people to a certain extent worship the way they worship, talk the way they talk, economy the way they economy, as long as when push comes to shove, they'll sacrifice their bodies and their money for right, the service right. of the great king. Yeah. But it's different and it marks yeah. this huge change. And then culturally, they mingle vigorously with Greece, who are not nearly as enlightened and democratic as it's fun to imagine, but <laughs> that swirling cocktail of Persian ideas and embryonic Greek democracy is what allows the Romans, when they get the baton, to try to interject some sort of universal applicability of a legal standard to ensure tolerance where it exists and the authority of the state where they are interested in that. And so all of this stuff, we're not even to the time of Jesus yet, and we don't need to go further with it. Before we even <laughs> right. get to the time of Christ, right. you can see six or seven global iterations and with each one, there's a realization, it just isn't a healthy, sustainable, good idea to try to brutally oppress people and control their thoughts and their marketplaces. Yeah. Some degree of freedom is needed for things to work. Yeah, that's incredibly thoughtful, even to think in the BC era of where those initial understandings of individualism, which I don't think became fully flourished until about the 1500s with the Reformation. But you do have glimpses of that as it's mm -hmm. starting to build. And frankly, I learned from you just listening to your most recent No Dumb Questions podcast that you actually look at the Persians and say they had a form of Western idealism that we don't nearly even come close to recognize in modern day society. Why would you say that is? Why has that been stifled? Well, because Herodotus, he's the father of history. He wrote the first... Darn you, Herodotus. <laughs> yeah, well, he's great. He's so good. It's excellent. But hey, you just got to apply some degree of critical thought to what you're getting from Herodotus. He's a guy who lived on the fault line between Persian control and Greek control. So he's Greek. He's from Halicarnassus. He's from Asia Minor. And Persia, for hundreds of years, held on to that area of Greek territory. 
and exchange cultures. You go a little bit further west across the Aegean, that's where you get the Athenians and the Spartans and the people who fought against Persia. Right. Well, Herodotus has a, this favorable notion of his cultural kin to the West and kind of liked Persia early on, but he thought Persia got soft. He thought they wandered from the principles of their founder, Cyrus the Great. And so he becomes more critical of Persia and more favorable toward Greece as he covers each successive great monarch of the Persian Empire from the late 500s through the mid 400s. And so as a result, we see this story about the fight between the Greeks and the Persians, we see it through the lenses of the Greeks are us, they're the West. And Persia, they're the communist East. They're Mao's China, they're Khrushchev's mid-20th century Soviet Union. It's Stallone versus Lundgren in the ring. Lundgren, it's so funny. It was like a Swedish name anyway. But. Change. Maybe we all could change. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's convenient from a Cold War perspective, which is what we were all raised around, to just sub in Persia for those awful Eastern dictators. But when you compare Persia to everybody else at the time, it's very forward thinking. And when you actually go and look at Greece from that time, it's not as forward-thinking as we imagine. The reality is the swirling cocktail of those two cultures coming together. Right. Why did they come together? Well, expansionistic impulses, but economic impulses is what really put them together. Well, they informed each other and they made things better. And I, I just think it's such a crucial moment in time. And I think Persia gets a bad rap. I love hearing you talk about history. And I would honestly suggest if you haven't listened to the most recent podcasts from No Dumb Question, and probably you'll have your next one out as you guys are talking about this pivotal moment in history between these two great powers. It's something that doesn't get talked about a lot. It's endlessly fascinating, but thanks, man. we're not here specifically to talk about the history of it, but that you are very much informed by those things. But I, I do want to say, though, and this is something that we constantly get at LCI, is the relationship between that idea of ultimate individual liberty and libertarianism, but you also have passages in the Bible that seem to be very, yay, government, submit to them, Romans 13-esque type of passages that people read and kind of bludgeon people on a regular basis. How do you, as a Bible guy, how do you square that circle? It doesn't require any squaring at all. It's square in the first place. The circle is what's been inflicted on the text. I did a video on Romans 13. It's called something like, what does Romans 13 mean? It's, it's something incredibly <laughs> simple like that. Hang on, I'm going to grab right. a Bible here. And oh, I've got a new living in front of me. It just happens to be what I have. I don't think I've ever looked at Romans 13 in the new living translation, but it's what we got. Bottom line is this. If you look at Romans 13 in light of the rest of the Bible, and you hold the theological understanding that God is behind the whole thing and that it's accurate and it's reliable and it's all from God, then Romans 13 is one of those passages that needs to be handled first with a negative hermeneutic. That meaning, well, your audience understands the concept of negative thought. It doesn't mean sure. sad and morose. It means right. eliminating things that can't be. So I'm sure you talk all the time about negative rights being the foundational rights of a free society things that I can do without anybody's permission and without anybody having to sacrifice anything else, I yeah. can assemble with someone or just stand up and talk. The deserted island ethic, basically. 
that you're starting from a deserted island and what's available to you. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in, in Romans 13, if you start with a negative hermeneutic and you just go with, all right, well, given the rest of the Bible, what can't this mean? I think you get a lot closer to what must this mean? So I've heard a lot of people look at Romans 13 and effectively say, well, the government is right and the Christian thing to do is to roll with what the government does. Now, that's an epistemological claim. That's an ethical genesis claim that at its heart is suggesting that as soon as the government says it, it becomes morally true. Yeah. And that's incredibly problematic. We know, for example, that governments in the Bible do not use the sword to punish evildoers and to reward those who do good. Going back to Persia, we see an example of it, that God raised up Cyrus to let the Jews go back and rebuild. That would be a nice example. But we also see that for the majority of his reign, Cyrus didn't lift a finger to do anything about the resistance that then occurred to a project he had authorized. And I can think of a really good example in the Bible of the government not punishing evildoers and instead using the sword to punish somebody who was righteous. Is Jesus of Nazareth, the guy for whom Christianity is named. Do you remember the cross thing? He So I don't know if you've read the Bible or not, but he actually gets crucified by the government. The government <laughs> murders him yes. in a sham of a trial, in a two-part bicameral distribution of powers, separation of powers style trial. They all come to the same ridiculous conclusion and murder a guy, even though they can't think of anything he actually did wrong. Right. So how can we read Romans 13 and take that as Paul is saying, well, governments get this right. And as soon as they swing the sword, their judgment was correct because, of course, they only use it for good and never for evil. So even go through yeah. those first seven verses of Romans 13 before you even get into the larger context of the flow of the argument of Romans 13. And you can clearly establish that it can't mean most of the things that Christians often make it out to mean because they really like the state and they really want to be at peace with the state. Instead, once you've gone through all of the things it can't mean, what you're left with is something that I think is incredibly shrewd on the part of Paul and something that we see in correspondence with monarchs throughout the Bible. You're close to the tiger right now. The tiger is beautiful. The tiger of government is alluring, but the tiger is dangerous. And there's a certain way to present yourself. Esther did not just flippantly walk in barking at King Xerxes to get him to spare her people. She was calculating. She was clever. She thought about his insecurities. She thought about his position and the places he was painted into a corner as a king descended from Darius, who was very compromised, and Cyrus, who was a little compromised. She understood him. She listened. She got the child she was dealing with, the clown king she was dealing with, and she was clever. Well, I think Paul is being clever. Who's emperor of Rome when Paul is writing this to the Roman church? Shouldn't be Nero, right? It's Nero. Yeah. Now, Nero eventually swung the sword on Paul right. himself. I mean, how ironic that you get this language about the sword, and that's how Paul dies in Rome under the authority of Nero. No, I think what Paul's doing here is he knows dang well this letter is going to get circulated and read by administrators in the Roman government, and there's a decent chance that the emperor Nero is going to put eyes on it eventually. He's inceptionizing to Nero the idea of what good government looks like by understanding Nero's insecurities, understanding the way Nero's painted into a corner, 
and writing this in a way that talks about the ideal government and just supposing out of ignorance from clear on the other side of the Mediterranean that surely this must be how Nero does things because Nero is good and just. He said so himself. So he would never abuse his power. He would never punish the innocent. He would never withhold punishment from the guilty. He would conduct himself with justice. There's a shrewdness in what Paul must be doing here, given the rest of the Bible, that I don't think we match in our modern readings of the text. Yeah. Hi, everyone. This is Jacob Daniel Winograd. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may want to check out other shows in the Christians for Liberty Network, such as my podcast, The Biblical Anarchy Podcast where we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man by instead seeking the kingdom of God, where we unpack what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. The Christians for Liberty Network is dedicated to bringing a variety of content you love, just like you're hearing on this episode right now. Okay, I'll let you get back to it. Then you can check out the Biblical Anarchy podcast. Well, you went on something there that I really want to pick up on. And I think it's rather important. You called government alluring. And sometimes we look at it with eyes of, <laughs> I can hold the precious ring in my hand and it not destroy me and I can use it for good. Have modern Christians in our understanding of how we interact with government today, have we lost our roots? Have we gone soft on government? Are we too willing to hold the ring of power? What do you think? That's such a good question with so many layers. I know we jumped a couple of millennia ahead on this, but I think it's important. No, yeah, no, it's a great question. Sometimes, I mean, that's a tough one to go yes or no with. Okay, the bad guy of the Bible, right? Who's the bad guy? I think the obvious answer is, well, it's Satan, it's Lucifer, it's the devil. Yeah, but you hardly ever see him. Right. He interacts with Jesus, but not in front of other people in Matthew chapter four during the temptation. We see a serpent in the garden who later we learn is associated with Satan. We get a look at some of his background in the major prophets. We see him in a pretty interesting setting in whatever genre Job is to be understood as being. And we get a little bit of a description of him and what kind of stuff he's trying to pull throughout the New Testament. And then he shows up big. In Revelation, where he gets his butt handed to him, right. and is ultimately defeated. But you go and look at those last four or five chapters of Revelation, which is just an awesome book that is so enormously abused and sold short. I mean, Revelation is the Summa Theologica. It's the summary of all of the history and theology of the Bible. It's the resolution of the whole Bible. And we cheat ourselves out of that spiking of the football and that exciting celebration because we're so interested in doing the exact opposite of what Jesus said. It's not for you to know the day or the hour. Cool, I hear you on that, Lord. So anyways, I think if you look at chapter 11 of Romans, <laughs> and if you look at the invasion of Afghanistan and what yeah. happened, like if you look at the video, there might not be a plane going into the Pentagon. And if you connect this red, I mean, oh my goodness. Yeah. We just get into crazyville and miss the whole point. What is the whole point? At the beginning, God was in unbroken fellowship with humanity in the garden. Then, there's this moment, is God going to redeem it or is he going to wash his hands of it? Hooray, he's going to redeem it in this grand historical narrative, this grand redemptive plan. And it looks like the whole arc of the Bible 
is to simply endure and get us back to the garden. But you get to the end of Revelation and you realize that the union with God visualized at the end of Revelation is even better than getting back to the garden. And it's better because we've seen now the alternative to the kingdom. We've seen the alternative to God as king. We've seen the enemy. And the enemy is just an exaggerated version of us. It's the states that we make. That is the manifestation of evil throughout the Bible. Think about it. Who's the actual tangible bad guy in the whole Bible? That's governments. How often do we see the clown king motif throughout the whole Bible? The king who thinks he's in charge and is making declarations about how things ought to be. We've already spoken about the portrayal of Xerxes and Esther. Clearly there, the point is God's name isn't even mentioned in the book, and he's more in charge than Xerxes, who calls himself the king of kings. Herod the Great imagines that he's in charge of everything. He's going to kill babies and do crazy stuff and whatever. God outfoxes him with a dream. A dream is all it takes (laughs) to get that done. You got one of Herod's descendants who dresses up in fancy armor, gleaming like Alexander the Great in the Book of Acts. He's giving speeches and saying how the things are because he's really in charge. He gets eaten by worms. There's this running joke throughout the Bible that our zombie pile that we call government, that we imagine is all of us standing on each other's shoulders and reaching up to the heavens like the Tower of Babel, is somehow a rival, a legitimate rival to the actual King of Kings, the actual sovereign God of everything who called existence out of non-existence. And the whole Bible disabuses us of that ridiculous illusion. Government is no substitute for God, but it is the thing we will look to if we make ourselves our own deity instead of God. So throughout the Bible, we see a very ugly relationship with government, often portrayed in the form of clown kings. But in the end, the dragon, the whore of Babylon, all of the things representative of our attempts to build our own God with paperwork, you'll see everything's quite in order, Mm -hmm. is exposed for a complete fraud. And all, it's so cathartic, Matt, all of the evil that is piled up throughout all of history, all the things that just get memory hold and go over the waterfall. And well, yeah, I mean, yeah, we sometimes we create diseases in labs and fund it with your taxpayer dollars. It kills a bunch of people, but those were confusing times. Let's just move forward and not argue about who killed who or how things happened. Stuff like that that just seems like it's never going to get dealt with. Hitler kills 6 million Jews, and that's not even the worst of it. He started a war that bloodified the whole world to a degree that was previously unimaginable. And then he just hides in his hole, what, takes a pill or something, and that's it? That's the end? That's the justice we get for the wickedness that these people have unleashed and perpetrated in their clown kinginess? Well, there is justice for it. And in the end, the whore of Babylon and the dragon is defeated. And all of that stuff that felt like it was never going to be resolved is resolved And vengeance is the Lord's, just like he said. And it's only by the grace of God and Christ's work on the cross that we don't suffer the same fate as individuals that the whore of Babylon, that the dragon experience. But it's effectively, Revelation ends with a complete and total repudiation of our attempts to build our own deity to serve us in ways we like better than the actual deity does. So as 
Christians have been kind of discussing, though, lately, the idea of Christian nationalism. It does seem, though, that we're maybe flirting again with that idea that, yeah, we can be in charge and we'll do it right this time. (laughs) I've heard some contemporaries and some people that I respect say, yeah, no, this is a good route to go down. Our laws should look more Christian. And here's the thing. In a sense, I agree with them. Do I want our laws to look more like, you would say, a redemptive view of how God views the world, or at least how we should view the world? Sure. I want people to do justice. I want them to do the right thing. I would want the world to look more Christian. However, (laughs) I think the idea of mainline cultural Christianity has done more a disservice to Christianity itself than I think what a lot of people are willing to even go down in terms of a thought process. That mingling of state power and our faith just seems to get so muddled that something's going to end up on the trash heap. And unfortunately, I think at this time in our lives, it's our faith. It's costly when Christians, when followers of God, try to grab the reins of power to force Christian stuff to happen. I mean, that's a tacit admission of failure when we do that historically. We couldn't find a way to be persuasive with it. We couldn't find a way to communicate the gospel or an understanding of the world where God is king, the kingdom values. We couldn't live those in a way that was compelling enough to persuade. And so fine, we asked you nicely, now we're going to do it with force. But at the same time, I think Paul's vision of the ideal government and what it ought to exist for, and I know anytime we're in libertarian circles, you've got a whole variety of people listening and you've got your committed anarchists who think it would be better with absolutely nothing. You've got your minarchists. I get it. I hate that we cannibalize each other. I think it's just dumb. I think we should just have fun with those points of disagreement. Yeah, that stuff's nauseating. But to whatever degree you think the state should have a role, and I do think it should have a role, I just think it should be much more voluntary than it is. To whatever degree, you want the state to be reflective of justice and the values of the kingdom. You want the state to exist to restrict a cabal from forming up, to restrict a gang, a cartel from forming up that shakes people down for their money and that makes them pay them protection money. And you want the state to exist to ensure Locke's notion of the maximum realizable freedom in any given context. So somebody to adjudicate our disputes, I'm open to. I mean, right now, I just don't believe very much in our participation in picking who those people are or how those systems work. I think that's become a monstrosity. So I want there to be an adjudicator. I want there to be peaceable resolutions to wrongs against person and property that happen in society. And I like the idea of there being a government that exists to restrict itself and to restrict anyone who would try to usurp its role and assert itself more aggressively than whatever presence of the state we agreed upon as people. I understand that's a very nuanced position. What I'm uncomfortable with is our sudden willingness to resort to the clown king model to try to make Jesus happen. I don't think it's going to work. I don't hate cultural Christianity. I really don't. I think 
whatever sits in the background and feels like the shared assumption of society is going to have some positive effects. I look back on some of the the assumptions that just existed behind the movies of the 1970s and 80s and 90s about faith or basic humility derived from a biblical worldview. I mean, come on, those are kingdom values. That's good. I don't care if they get there in a sloppy, haphazard way. That's a little bit of salt sprinkled into the thing. I can live with that. Again, I don't need the purity test for everybody to think all my things politically or biblically in order for me to see the redemptive work of God and stuff or to celebrate the little wins. I'll take it. What I'm concerned with is the wholesale rejection of principle and looking at the authoritarian left and their weaponization of Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals and even Roger Stone, though recently an ally of some in the neoconservative camp, those two guys and their weaponization of the goodwill of people that is kind of a leftover kingdom value, their weaponization of that against the electorate to make insane authoritarianism happen and to aggressively push everything left is one of the great evils of our time. And I'm hearing followers of Christ say, well, you got to fight fire with fire, which I've never heard. I don't think in nature that actually works at all. I don't understand where that saying comes from or what the logic is behind it. But I hear him saying, Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals, it's subversive and it's destroying culture and the way the left behaves is destroying everything. Let's act just like them, but assume that we're so pure of heart and noble that we can carry that ring And that once we have all the power, we'll use it only for responsible things. I got a thousand years of the church being in charge of Europe to say, no, we won't. We'll be piles of crap like everybody else with that much power is. And we will not produce beautiful, redemptive things. So I'm very concerned that we've learned no biblical lessons and no historical lessons in thinking that authoritarianism is how you beat authoritarianism. So real quick then, You're not big on Christendom 2.0? If it's achieved entirely peaceably and through voluntary means, I think that would be incredible. The problem is that it's like the Sword of Damocles thing, right? What you have to do to get that power compromises how you will rule once you have it. This is one of the age-old truisms, maxims, proven again and again and again throughout the history of the whole world, not even just the West. Yeah. And so if we do unjust and evil things to achieve power, we can imagine that we will rule justly when we have it, but history and human nature says we will not, as that sword of Damocles, that sword of how we got there, will hang over our heads forever and will twist us up into the same dark evil we were trying to defeat in the first place. Hello, everyone. It's Doug from the Libertarian Christian Podcast. You might notice already that this recording sounds quite a bit different from usual. In fact, it probably sounds pretty crappy. Well, I'm doing this to show you something pretty amazing. As you might know, the guys over at Podsworth Media have been producing my show for several years, quite a while, hundreds of episodes. And now they have a brand new online app for taking rough recordings like this one and making them sound a whole lot cleaner and a lot more listenable in just a few easy clicks. So here are some of the core features. They remove background noise. It reduces plosives, which is really handy for me because I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video. I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video. 
because pop filters look terrible when you're on camera. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly and then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly and then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. How do you use it? It's easy. You go to podsworth.com, you click get started. And because you're a listener to one of the Libertarian Christian Institute's podcasts, you can get 50% off your first order by entering the promo code LCI50. That's LCI50, and you will get 50% off your first order. If you are doing anything like a podcast, a video, a sermon, an audiobook, anything that's spoken word, you want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. You want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. Man, Matt, you are a interesting guy and you definitely have thought through a lot of this stuff. And somebody who's such a student of history, I can understand that you would have to, to really kind of get this. But let me just ask you a quick question because let me go a little bit personal, if you don't mind. Huh? At one point in your life, you know, you're weaving together your beliefs and understandings of society and state and God's story and your position with it. And as a Christian, you're coming from that position. But you even admit yourself at one point, you basically called it quits on God. You became an atheist. You were one to say, nope, I'm done. I'm sw switching teams. What took you to that place? Yeah, I've got to push back on that characterization just a little bit there for the record. No, I, I never wanted to switch teams. I was never mad at God. I was never hurt by God. Okay. I went through some really tough stuff, painful things of my own making, painful things that I didn't have anything to do with that just yeah. happened to me. I didn't go looking for trouble. I just found it and, and loss, difficult loss for a young man and disaffectedness with what really looked like a silly, inconsistent expression of the Christianity I was raised around. And all of that stuff swirled together after going to seminary, mind you, to be in a place where I wasn't wanting to pick a fight with God. I wasn't mad at God. I didn't feel any of those things. It just earnestly at the level of my heart for a time could not honestly say that I believed there was a God. Hmm. And that was a very painful thing because yeah, well, I, I didn't want to be estranged from from a God who for my whole life I had believed existed. So my atheism stint is a very strange one because it wasn't hurt or malicious. It wasn't, I'm mad at my parents. They're great. It wasn't even really that much like I'm mad at church or mad at anybody. It was just epistemological in nature, philosophical in nature. I just got to a place where like, I, I just, with where I'm at right now in my process of thought and building everything out, yeah, I just don't think there's a God. And it's hard to think something you don't think. And I want to do eyes wide open faith. And I would say at that point in my life, I did completely honest eyes wide open, not faith. Now, I know there are different theological persuasions. Some would say you were in, you were a Christian as a kid. It was real. That doesn't go away. And God is patient with you while you go through those struggles. Cool. Yeah, I'm great with that read. I certainly don't believe that if I had randomly died while I was in that moment of my journey of faith and belief and not belief in my 30s that I would have been forsaken by God and that the work of Christ on the cross would no longer have been applied to me. I think God is 
shockingly gracious in those things and incredibly more understanding of the life of the mind and the inner life of the soul. And he's understanding the limitations of the brain and how hard it is even just to hold all of the different factors in your mental cash yeah. at once. I mean, I think the grace of God would have applied to me in those moments, even just simply on my lack of aptitude, my lack of raw processing power to properly factor everything in this grand equation. But what I will say is coming out of that, my faith looked a lot different. It was no longer simply a grand equation of these 10 maxims work for me, therefore God. Yeah. Faith 2.0 for me has been much more rooted in the Bible and the actual presence of God, of the Holy Spirit. And yeah, so I, I guess I just wanted to nuance that out just a little bit more because I never deconstructed that it's anachronistic. It's not an accurate way to characterize what I went through. Yeah, it was like everybody else who was raised on 90s youth group. It was weird. It was the end of insular Christianity that could just exist in its own very large bubble, separate from the realities of the rest of culture in the world. The internet wrecked that. And me, like all of us collectively, have had to go through a reevaluation process of what it looks like to do Christian faith and theology in the context of a much more connected world where you just can't turn a blind eye to the fact that you share earth with people who see it completely differently, which my friend takes me back to how I became a libertarian. There has to be an ethic of tolerance and patience. From a practical sense, you simply cannot exist with the gospel in the world without a degree of patience with your neighbor Otherwise, you have to write people off the first time they're not a Christian. Well, God yeah. doesn't write us off the first time we're not a Christian. Right. So there's also a theological aspect that says we're imitating the character of God, who is massively long-suffering and patient with massive violations of his moral will and his law, stuff that unlike me, he actually has the authority to dictate. And then he withholds calling in all of those accounts. Is God tolerant? That'd be a great episode someday to have a debate about. He is certainly patient. Yeah. He is long-suffering. He does not conceive of time as we conceive of time. And he does not conceive of slowness as some of us conceive of slowness. And so if he has gone on a redemptive arc and been patient with us, how much more so ought I to be patient with my neighbor? And thus, libertarianism. I hate some of the cultural trajectories we see right now. But I just don't think I can actually defeat those things with the sword. I think I can want a government that puts some parameters in place that keep injustices from happening and that prevent the exploitation of children and the weak. I think our notions of justice culturally are very upside down right now. I think our laws reflect the opposite of actual justice. So I'll argue for whatever state we're stuck with, doing things that are more just but tolerance is still a central theological and philosophical plank of how I see the world and it informs how I think about my relationship with my neighbor. Wow. Thank you for pushing back on that, on the characterization, because it definitely seems that your journey was much more on the intellectual side than having to anything to do with being hurt by God or the church or anything like that. It was something where you just had to make sure that if I'm reading you correctly, it seems that the intellectual practice of understanding who God is just took some time to really build on itself. Yeah. 
And it's a, a function of when it happened as well. I say again, we're on a seam in history. And maybe I could come up with eight eras of the West. And a lot of people thought that the divide we were going through was a relativism versus capital T truth divide. A lot of people suggested that happened around the middle of the last century with the end of the era of optimism after two world wars and a holocaust. I don't think that's actually the divide. I don't think it's a relativism divide. I think the divide is what happens when you put all of planet Earth in a room together. I think it's a technological divide. And I think a thousand years from now, when people look back, they're not going to point to 1950. They're going to point to the advent of YouTube, the advent of MySpace, Facebook, Twitter, social media. And we are epistemologically something new and entirely untested to all be in a room together, having instant access to everything about each other and what other people think. And I think a lot of what I went through is the same thing all of Christianity is going through and trying to figure out what the gospel and what faith in God looks like when you live in an environment as unprecedented as that. You just provided a fantastic segue, but I can't take it because we're out of time. I might have to have you back to discuss that idea because the Christian yourself as bar me from the terrible characterization, but a Christian personality on YouTube out there who is speaking about, like you say, redemptive things in the Bible, that has a tremendous amount of implications for the faith in total. And some of the other things that you're doing as well that I have a lot of respect for, you're visiting churches and just going on a tour of the architecture and saying, why do you have this on the floor? Or why is the altar here and not over here and things like that. And those types of crossing the aisle to try to bring people together, you're doing a, a tremendous job on. And I would love to speak on that side of the social media train here at some point. But you have been such a fantastic guest. I frankly had to ask you very few questions. So thank you for being <laughs> such a wonderful. It's a good thing or a bad thing. I get excited and I get to go in, man. It was a great conversation, and you had some great insights through history and libertarianism. I think things that have not been touched on in such a long time. So we would love to have you back. Thank you so much for being here. Very much appreciated, sir. It was a delight. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, this is Matthew Bellis with the Libertarian Christian Institute and the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Stay tuned for our next podcast coming up here in about a week. We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.